Hi, and welcome to Second Rate Film School. I'm Andrew, and today I'm joined by longtime friends of the show, Ben Rock and Matt Blasey. Welcome back, guys. Hey, how's it going? Hey, thanks for having us. Now, we're here today covering the greatest movie of all time, Book of Shadows, Blair Witch 2. Hmm. Now, I can say that Ben and Matt are on the show today because, you know, Matt wrote Eight Days in the Woods, the making of the Blair Witch Project, and that Ben was the production designer of the original Blair Witch Project, as well as writer and director of several of the Blair TV specials. Yes. But in reality, my usual co-host just flat out refused to do this episode, so I guess these two are actually my backup plan. I mean, it's not like torture to watch it. It's, it's, It's a movie. It's, you know, anyway, it's not like, hey, let's watch Andy Warhol's Empire State in its entirety. In fairness, Jake did say he's like, I don't know what I could possibly say about this movie. So he's like, maybe get the two experts to come on. Mm. <laughs> well, I mean, as, as a fan, I was I was 18 when Blair Witch came out and, I, and Book of Shadows. I, I was excited for I was like, there's more Blair Witch. I'll take it. And I didn't really care if it was found footage or not. To me, that wasn't like a like a necessity. It wasn't like, you know, we talk about films now. I was just excited for more Blair Witch. And mm-hmm. I was excited for the longest time and and I remember seeing it and I was like okay and it, it was one of those where I was like I didn't I didn't quite get what they were going for I mean I got it to a point but then it was like I think it was just so different than what I was expecting that it just kind of it just fell flat for me right away and I try to find something enjoyable about every film and there's parts of this film that I do enjoy um but there's a lot and there's uh there's Joe. Yeah, this is all by the way, all the stuff that happens right here is all stuff that was shot afterwards like it wasn't part of the original movie um because the original movie kind of picks up where the actual story picks up and they kind of like uh kind of shoehorned this backstory thing in there at the at the last minute. And uh, coming up here in a second, uh, there's there's a bunch of mental institution stuff, and uh, I just have a personal frustration with this sequence because an executive from Artisan excitedly told me how they made Joe go do something that I had done in a in a Blair Witch special called the Burkittsville Seven and referenced specifically Titicut Follies, the Frederick Wiseman documentary, and uh, we're not quite there yet, but they literally recreate the scene albeit in the most Marilyn Manson music video-ish way that you could, but they recreate the scene from Titicut Follies that I had sort of paid homage to in uh, in, in Burkittsville 7. By the way, that actor is amazing. He's in Miller's Crossing. I was the, One of the things I was very excited about with this movie was that he was in it. Oh, yeah. He was mine and Jake's favorite part, too. We're constantly quoting him now. No, he's a really good actor. We did have a Sheriff Cravens actor. I don't know why they didn't try and do anything. I don't know. It was... Well, technically, the actor you had is the quote-unquote real Sheriff Cravens of the universe, since Curse of the Blair Witch and all that are, technically speaking, true. This is just an actor portraying him for the recreation. Here, this, this, is, this is the Titicut Follies scene. They're, they're directly ripping off Titicut Follies uh, because I brought it to their... Like, no one in Hollywood is sitting around talking about Titicut Follies. I promise you. And it, it came to the artisan exec's attention, and I do a scene, a nose feeding scene in Burkittsville 7. This is just the identical setup as uh, as Titicut Follies. All the, the shots are different and the lensing is different. But uh, the, this, and, and, and the executive excitedly told me about it, right down to the cigarette ash thing. That, that was something that they specifically took from Titicut Follies. 
I mean, yeah, that's just the issue with this movie in a nutshell. Um, yeah, if you haven't watched Burkittsville 7, I highly recommend it. It's out there on YouTube. But, um, yeah, the way you describe it in that is super unsettling and makes you squirm, where this is recreating it but doesn't have any of the oomph behind it. It's just something out of a Marilyn Manson music video. Yeah. You know, 45-degree shutters were really new, and everyone was excited to experiment with 45-degree shutters on their cameras. So, you know, why not, why not, uh, why not Joe? Seeing it like this is unsettling to a degree, I suppose. But, you know, hearing a woman just monotonously describe something we're not actually seeing is just so much more impactful. <laughs> yeah, and I um, love there's like the picture of Kyle Brody in here. Is, um, is that it over his shoulder? I can never tell. I don't see David Grammer in there. I, or it looked like a drawing. I read supposedly that in this scene there was a picture of Kyle Brody over Jeff's shoulder at one point. So I don't know. Uh, I wouldn't put it past him. Yeah. Well, now we're at the opening credits where originally they wanted to have Witchcraft, the Sinatra song, play over it to kind of lull you, I guess, into a false sense of security, kind of make it seem a little more goofy and then, you know, no, we're going to get into it. But instead, they're like, no, murder, Marilyn Manson, etc. Yeah, disposable teens. <laughs> I got to say, teens. I got to say that I, I do enjoy the soundtrack to this film the most of it. And, you know, whether it's Marilyn Manson or anything, I just enjoyed the the music in terms of the, the score and, and and the musical pieces. It was probably the one thing that hooked me into the movie the most. And it this soundtrack is 2000 as hell but oh, yeah. <laughs> but you know carter burrell's music whose credit was just on screen i just i, I mean, enjoyed it one of the one of the best composers one of the best living composers mm-hmm. speaking of miller's crossing did the score for miller's crossing <laughs> yeah no i will say with it there is i do like things about this and yeah i will say the best thing about the dvd version i bought to for us to watch this is mine has the dual side um when you flip it over it has the soundtrack so not gonna lie i've been listening to that a little bit so I'll also that in my halloween playlist i just want to say nancy schreiber's cinematography is pretty amazing like i think she's she's a great dp and uh you know uh there's a great team on this movie i i will maintain to the death that the real problem with this movie is they didn't give it enough time um to develop like they, they just spent no time to develop they didn't have time to develop the script they gave it the green light in like january and they were shooting in march there was n- you you can't i'm not gonna say it's physically impossible to write a good script that fast but they didn't write a good script that fast and most people can't well and, you, and blair was such a, a phenomenon for most of 1999 that they, they didn't give a chance for it to breathe i think they figured well this is hot people come back and see us and yeah, and everything, and and I felt taking a year off, and you know maybe shooting in the following October for a, a 2002 release or a 2001 release would have given it time to breathe and let it settle, yeah. and you know kind of also let people want it a little bit. Like I think that they believe their own hype, and and I say this as someone for whom Blair, which is one of my favorite things I've ever worked on in my entire life. However, a lot of people didn't like it. And I, and I think that they just assumed that everyone who bought a ticket, you know, the conventional wisdom in Hollywood is like, you'll get 40% of your, uh, of, of the part one for the part two. So to them, 40% of, you know, 250 million is not a bad, not a bad haul. Um, but I, 
you know, I think that they overestimated uh, their ability to market it and underestimated how many people really wanted it. And I agree, Matt, if they had waited another year, I think I think the right thing to have done. And I'm not just saying this because they're my friends and because I worked on the original. The right thing to have done would have been to let Ed and Dan make the second one or at least let Ed and Dan uh, be in charge of how the second one was made. But what they wanted was the uh, it's been said before. They wanted the the tits and gore version of Blair Witch. And so, you know, so they did that. Yeah, I think in um, the discussion video on the Blair Witch comics that Matt and I did link below, um, I don't know if it made the final cut or not, but we discussed briefly at one point how we felt um, the sequel should have worked. And yeah, I think it should have been a year or two off where maybe all the Blair Witch stuff we get is stuff like the mockumentaries that aired on Sci-Fi, The Curse, The you know, Shadow of, etc. You could do yeah. so much rich stuff that you could do a 40-minute special a couple times a year with it to keep you know the slow burn of it going. And then, yeah, yeah you know, in 2000, you do it. But uh, you ever watch you ever watch the pitch meetings on YouTube? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so I, I love it when uh, the executive says, "Well, why why would we do that?" And the writer goes, "Because money." And he's like, "I love money." So uh, so what this was all about was Artisan was uh, planning to make an IPO, and they wanted to all become super millionaires, and they were going to do it on the back of this film. So I feel like if you were to have said to them, "You can do it in the year 2000." or 2001, they would have said, I would like to be a multimillionaire in 2000 rather than 2001. And I don't think quality became that much of an issue to them. I think that they just thought they could sh shove this into some great need of, for this movie. And uh, the problem to me was always that fans of the original knew that the original was like this thing that was workshopped and was a labor of love that was worked on for years. And then cynically, a year later, not just slightly more than a year later, a sequel is cranked out and in theaters. And uh, and when I made uh, Curse of the Blair Witch, one of the super frustrating things for me was uh, we had a fully formed concept that we were going to do for it. Um, and I'm not I mean, like it's a marketing project for artisans. So I'm not saying they had to do my idea, whatever it was. They told me what they wanted to make was just like Curse of the Blair Witch. They wanted to say that all these events happened and they're a re recreation of real events and make a documentary about the real thing. And I was like, okay, so I just want to think about the timeline here. Uh, in October of 1999, a bunch of people get killed. And in October of 2000, we're releasing an entertaining horror movie based on this murder where like, you know, like the, the bodies are barely cold. Like it's in horrifically awful taste if you expect people to believe that you know at least even with the original Blair Witch pitch it was like these students disappeared in 1994 and then like five years had gone by and the movie came out we're, we're saying it's a year and also you know the story is kind of you know it's it's not it's not as compelling and it's not as I, what people liked I think about the original was like the backstory and the mythology of it and you know, the overall spook story of it. And this doesn't really, this, that's not what sells this story in my opinion. Um, so I'm not, I'm not here to slag on it and to say it's, 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 it's without merit. It's just, uh, I think that that was a bad way to go about trying to sell this particular idea. Yeah. And I just, Oh, sorry. You go, Matt. I was just going to say, do you think aside from the timing of it, do you think this would have worked better staying as a found footage film? And, and kind of continue I don't know. I mean, to play in that world? Uh, 
my instinct would be to get out of found footage. Um, but like what Ed and Dan had wanted to do was like a colonial era witch story. So like 1700s, sort of the origin story ish of it. Uh, although it was never intended to be that simple. And, uh, I like to flatter all of us and say that what they were thinking of was a lot like the witch, which I think is just a masterpiece of a film. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but something in that kind of vein, and obviously you can't have a found footage movie in the 1700s or can you, but, uh, <laughs> um, it's a series of woodcuts. It's a series that are, daguerreotypes didn't even exist. I want to do a found daguerreotype movie. That's, that's my next big thing. But, um, no, uh, I think that that would have worked. I think that you could have taken the sense of isolation, the sense of dread, uh, the mythology. You could have built all that into a story at a different era and uh, avoided comparisons with the original one because you know they were so pure about uh, how they set up the way the first one was shot. Ed and Dan were, and uh, like it, it really was so pure. And I feel like once you have real money behind you, you, you know actors aren't going to want to live in the woods for eight days. Like you're just not going to get away with what, with what we did on the first one. Um, if you, if you have anyone paying attention to what you're doing at all, I mean like the only reason we got away with it was because it was a $25,000 movie being made by a bunch of nobodies, you know? So, uh, so, and, and I'm not even slagging on, uh, found footage movies, but I think it's really hard to get found footage. Right. And I think, uh, uh, I, I can't be objective about it, but I do feel like that's one of the things that Blair Witch gets so right is is the is the story behind the found footage, the why the camera keeps rolling all the time, and the sense that uh, that you're watching a real documentary because, as I always say, you kind of are. You know, the actors didn't really know what they were walking into. They might have had a slight idea, but you know, they're also actors, but they didn't fully know what it was. So they were literally documenting whatever was happening around them in real time. By the way, Secret of S. Rever C. It says me in the grass next to her. Oh, that's clever. I think the Secret of S. Rever is actually a really clever idea. Yeah. No, I. Um, you know, um, we've obviously been talking around this movie, but going into it, um, yeah. No, it's a very interesting concept that um, they put in where throughout the movie you would see visual clues, written words. So um, earlier when they go pick up Kim at the cemetery, um, the name Treacle, which reference to Eileen Triacle from that's mentioned in Curse mm. is um, I can't remember what's changed to there that I, further prom- yeah further that one's the most prominent because it's black lettering and like just various things happen throughout it and it's a very interesting concept I don't know how much it actually adds into rewatching. I, I always notice it now but yeah. it's just like something I'm like oh yeah it's yeah, clever that's, it, it's clever it's I, just um, it's more of a intellectual i think like oh that's an interesting concept to put yeah it's it always felt to me it it was an afterthought after i don't remember all of that in the theater and obviously it probably would have been but you know dvd was was such a new thing and i remember like you know when you look at the special features on dvds you know interactive menus was a special feature you know they were they were hyping up the the technology Mm. of dvd so it was it was an interesting reason to watch the movie on dvd a few times to try to pick out everything and i think they even had on the website like you were supposed to go and put in all the clues or or whatever that so they were they attempted to do more of the you know added on stuff so i i i wish i could remember if that was in the theater or not but i thought at the time it was cool because dvd was such a new cool thing i was like oh 
this is neat. It, I can go back and rewatch it and see stuff I never saw before. Yeah. And it, yeah. it's definitely interesting because, yeah, and again, like we just passed, like, Seek was um, in the fire. That's a thing where it goes into the whole um, theme of the movie of analyzing the footage so much. And mm. I think that's, you know, I think just the interesting thing, which I don't know how I feel about what they tried doing with this of the big deconstruction, you know, a year later, that it's, you know, obviously a more cynical sequel to do this quickly after the major movie is just uh, it's heather's brother going into the woods and it would have been like a million you know like found footage movies they would have you know in an alternate universe where i'm blair witch 20 and they're like on sci-fi channel now yeah it's found well footage every i time. mean the the whole it could have gone down would have been more like what paranormal activity movies did and you know my hat's off to those movies they they did a really good job and i remember when i saw the first one steve barton actually showed me the first one at his place in san diego uh, and, and before it, before it was released and I was like, wow, this is like the scariest found footage movie I've seen in a long time. And then when they cranked out the sequel very quickly, I was like, oh, it's going to suck. And then I went and saw it and I was like, no, you know, like I, I thought, I thought the second one was good. I, I think I remember the third one. I don't remember it blowing me away, but you know, the fact that they were able to keep a found footage idea going was clever. I mean, they did a great job with it. Blair Witch could have done that. You know, I mean, like there's a lot of low budget horror movies like I like saw, you know, the Saw series did super well. And I don't think any of the installments were as good as the as the original one. I thought the first one was amazing. And after that, I think they got a little hung up on coming up with insane torture devices. Uh, Not that there's anything wrong with that. They're not bad movies. I just love the first one. And I remember when they cranked out the second one super fast, it's like, oh, oh, it's going to be like Blair Witch 2 again. And it wasn't, I think. Artisan didn't have the wherewithal to market it as well as they thought they did. I don't think the market wanted the movie as badly as they thought it did. And I also think that it wasn't good. And that w- that was the problem. And the badness is not from the cast and it's not from the cinematography. And it's not even from Joe's directing. It's from the script. The script was never fully cooked. And, uh, and, and I think that a lot of that was marketing taking the wheel instead of letting creative do their job. But marketing had to take the wheel because it had to be just jammed out so quickly. I mean, it's just the law of diminishing returns. We look at all the popular franchises that started in the 70s and then went into the 80s. You know, each one in terms of quality was the same formula with, you know, a 10% tweak in yeah. in the previous film. And, you know, I agree. You know, the first Saw film was great. And I was excited every year because I enjoyed the Saw films. And, and same thing with Paranormal Activity. It was really the first one of the first found footage films after Blair that I ever remember seeing because it wasn't something that was, you know, popular yeah. between 99 and I think that would have been 09. So Cloverfield came out before that, which, which I enjoyed yeah, Cloverfield a lot. was like 2009. I want to say. Yeah. I was going to say it's either 2008, 2000, it was 2008 because diary of the dead came out, which Romero did oh, found right. footage. Um, and I remember, and I agree with you. Paranormal activity, I think was, one of the if not the only found footage type genre to kind of be consistent through the first couple of films like the first three films i think go very well together obviously the first is in my opinion the best but and i've said this before is you know the blair witch film never lent itself to becoming a franchise and i think that's part of the problem with any subsequent film Mm -hmm. is that it's a square peg in a round hole is you guys never intended to be like okay, well, this will be the first one, and then we'll do this one. I always felt that Blair would 
be better lived on as something online or in other mediums and not so much film because i think that first one you guys did was just so out there so out of left field done so right that nothing's going to come close to it well you'd have to sort of hit a bullet with a bullet again like you know it, it, it was you know uh like a perfect aligning of the stars in every way, not just in the making of it, not just in everything in the nascence of the internet at the time in um, the way it was marketed. Like so many things just were perfect where if you came out, if found footage wasn't a thing and you came out with the Blair Witch project today, I don't think it would have the same amount of impact um, because it was, it was on top of so many things and I, it's just hard. It's really, really fucking hard to do that twice. It's not, it's not something that you can plan. We didn't plan for the first one to be what it was. We were just hoping that it would maybe play some film festivals or something. I don't think, uh, you know, like we were hoping it could get a video release. We, we None of us ever would have dreamed it was going to do what it did. And then you come into the sequel with expectations of making 40% of awesome and, uh, you know, weren't able to go pretty good. Uh, Artisan wasn't able to do their IPO. They, um, you know, heads rolled and it was because of this movie. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really unfortunate. And, you know, Ben, in our video, again, link below, um, you summed it up as, had you even known the movie was going to make 10% of what it did, you guys would you said you would have fucked it up. Like, there's totally a thousand percent. We would have we would have second guessed every every decision, screwed everything up. Yeah. And that's the thing. I think it's just, you know, like you said, you know, why Blair is great is because it's the perfect combination of you know, the realism of the actors, you know, we're doing everything with uh, the filming and the ad-libbing that the conceit actually makes sense because it's, it's the one that makes sense why they're filming because, yeah, they're film students. Of course they're going to be filming. And then, you know, later on it makes sense because they don't have flashlights anymore. They're going to have their cameras on because the cameras have the lights on it. Yeah. That everything, when you combine it, makes the perfect combination and trying to do anything. I mean, this is just truly a baffling direction to go to. And I think that's what you said. It's like, you know, they really overestimated how many people were hungering for a Blair Witch sequel. And then you do this batshit insane five characters in search of an exit esque deconstruction yeah. to a movie that a lot of people didn't like to begin with. That's like, yeah, it's going to, you know, nose dive into the ground pretty damn quick. But I'll say Kim director, for instance, right here, Kim director, amazing actor. She's mm-hmm. just amazing. The whole cast is great. Um, I mean, Jeffrey Donovan. When when I first saw Burn Notice, I went, "Oh, the dude from Book of Shadows!" Like, and yeah. and I've never been disappointed in anything Jeffrey Donovan has ever done. Yeah, yeah. And, and when I see Kim Director pop up in something, to me, it's always like, "Oh, it's gonna be, it's gonna be." At least her part of it will be really good. You know, like I love her in the Spike Lee movie Inside Man. I yes. like her in in the Deuce. I th- I think she's I think she's amazing. And uh, you know, it's it's. Uh, yeah, it's just, it's just all I don't I, I don't know. Part of it I think too is that uh Joe Berlinger is one of one of our best documentarians, one of the best living documentarians today. Like definitely one of the top. But uh he hated the first movie. Why would you hire him to direct yeah. a sequel? Why would you hire someone to direct a sequel to a movie they don't like? And I I don't know if this is really true, but according to the legend, Jeff they asked Jeff Donovan when he went in what he thought of the first Blair Witch and he's like, "It sucked." And that's part of what got him the role. And I know that maybe sounds super punk rock, but it's also like, uh, I don't know. I mean, I like I, I can see that if Jeff's character 
was someone who hated the Blair Witch. So, like, I think that would work for, like, an Erica. Like, you know, if they were going, like, super in-depth, like, we're going to hire an actual Wiccan actress. Like, if they were going to get, like, really method, like, if all these people were truly who they were. So, like, we're going to get some college academics who are interested in deconstructing stuff. We're going to get a goth girl. We're going to get, you know, the capitalist, you know, stoner guy and all that. I think that would work. But, like, when you're just getting a bunch of, like, actors who are going to then be playing those roles, that's the wrong way of doing. Because Jeff doesn't give any indication he hates Blair Witch. Like, yeah, he's an opportunist with all this. But I never get the idea that he's just purely, I hate the movie and it's just, you know, capitalism. It's just like, yeah, I'm going to take advantage of this. Like, you don't get too much insight with him, or any of them, really. Also, I just want to point out that the thing that really frustrates me here is the lack of care when crafting, like, the continuity, like, in terms of the original one. So, like, this is supposedly the foundation to Rustin Parr's house, which they mention... This is where we found mm-hmm. the film. You know, they have like the reference to they find the film here again. It's like, oh, well, this is where they found the student's film. And it's like, oh, well, no, they say Rustin Parr built his house in this, you know, in um, Burkittsville 7 or one of them. And it's like, well, no, they then say in Curse that it was a colonial house. So it's that's always just frustrated me. That's like, you know, the first movie's continuity and lore yeah. is so well built and integrated throughout all of the various things that they're just like, you it's felt like at times they watched the first movie once on a tv in the background can i complain about something too by the way nobody cares about this but all all over these walls are runes we did not use runes runes (laughs) were never a part of it it makes me so mad it's so lazy uh that they use runes we we used a different language that i talk about all the time called transitus fluvii for all the weird markings and stuff like that and and people would refer to them as runes and uh, there was like literally no communication between um, their production design team and me, even though I was a consultant on the whole, whole franchise. I will take credit for one thing that uh, they asked to do. And I said, there's just no way you can do that, which was they wanted to move the story to Baltimore. They wanted it all to play out in Baltimore for some reason. And, I w- and they were like, can't the witch follow them back? And I'm like, think of it like the Bermuda Triangle. Could you take the Bermuda triangle to, you know, California. Not really. You know, I mean, I guess you could, you could come up with some weird reason, but like, that's not the mythology that we'd created. And, you know, I understand that necessarily every sequel is going to have to tweak and change the mythology to tell their story. The story is more important than like keeping the absolute integrity of a hundred percent of the mythology. But I do think undermining the basic idea of it is, you know, misguided. When I agree with that, and you can change things, but like it just felt like such random changes, like to then say, "Well, this is the Rust and Parr house," and then yeah. like, later when, um, you know, Kim like gets a brief shot of like a person in the electric chair, and it's like I thought that was originally supposed to be Jeff, but apparently, or these fans have said, "Oh, that's supposed to be Rust and Parr." It's like, like, like six months ago, guys, the other one came out where it's like he's hanged in the 1940s. Yeah. He wouldn't have been in an orange jumpsuit. He wasn't in an electric chair, and it's. A thing where I know it's a nerdy thing to get hung up on, but it just sums up to me what's so great about the original Blair Witch is how rich the mythology is, and you're just kind of disregarding it. Well, and I think that, again, I think that, like, you know, Curse of the Blair Witch um, was, did, did, you know, really reached a lot of people, and I think it's because it was all mythology. And I think that that was one of the things that sucked me into the story. In fact, the entire pitch 
when I was first told the story by Greg Hale, which I think I told you on your podcast, um, was all about the mythology. The mythology was the exciting part. And then, and then the modern day story was, it was cool that you could, that a modern day moment could interplay with a mythology like that. Like that was, that was part of, I think what made the first one work. And the second one just doesn't have its own mythology. You know, the mythology pretty much is all about the movie. I will say I love how um, I've read that Artisan and the studios and all that were like a little like disturbed about the, like the blood on um, her crotch there for the miscarriage. Yeah. And it's like the one actually disturbing scene in the movie. And it's very funny that they then forced Joe to go back and shoot all the gore scenes of the murder. It's like you put needless gore in, but the one actual unsettling part of the movie that has you know a tenth of the blood. That's where we go. We cross the line, supposedly. And I it shows you why studio execs are terrible. I, I don't feel like this is the case as much anymore because there are places like Shudder um, that that are very reverent to genre work. But I believe that the conventional wisdom at the time, you know, and this is only 20 years ago, was 21 years ago, I guess, was that uh, the real audience for horror movies in their minds were a bunch of like 15-year-old boys who would one day be serial killers. And so you're making up this fictional audience and you're aiming everything at them. And hence, like more tits, more gore, more tits, more gore. And, you know, the truth of horror audiences is that that's not what they are at all. Horror audiences are, are more women than men a lot of times. Uh, they're, they skew a little bit older. I mean, sure. When I was 15 years old, I couldn't wait to see the next, you know, whatever horror movie was coming out. But you know, the, the, there are huge audiences for this stuff and they aren't a bunch of 15 year old boys. And to me, it's a little frustrating that it was frustrating at the time that there was this need to reduce it to that when that it was unnecessary. You know, the audience that liked the first Blair Witch uh, didn't you didn't go to Blair Witch for tits and gore. There was no tits, no gore. There was nothing sexy about the original Blair Witch. It's not what, what the movie was about. So to try and sexy up the franchise seems silly, but that uh, just sounds like executive speak. That, that just sounds like what, it, what an... And I'm not even trashing all executives. I've worked with some amazing, wonderful, sweet, smart executives who get the genre that they're working in and, and want it. I'm, I'm doing a project right now with some executives who are outrageously smart about getting to the, the horror audience and having respect for them. I feel like th- this was not a case of executives who respected the audience they were making the movie for. And that's very frustrating. Well, I could tell you that, you know, this, you know, the, the first boy rich doesn't have those cliches and tropes that we're all used to the jump scares, the, the gotchas, the, you know, the, yeah. the flashiness and this one's full of it. And, yeah. and, you know, I've always felt that this is the antithesis and we've gotten so many good horror films in the last five, six, seven years. You know, like you said, The Witch, it just creates this movie. atmosphere and it it draws you in. And for a lot of that film, there's not a lot happening that's really yeah. considered, you know, a horror film. And in, in the constant barrage of, you know, gore and jump scares and imagery, it, it's not always needed. And no, and, like, and, and I'm not, and I'm not against that. I love a lot of movies like that. I yeah. love, you know, I love Stuart Gordon's entire filmography. I love Sam Raimi, you know, like these people who, you know, uh, drag me to hell, I think is a, 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 a an underappreciated horror mm-hmm. classic and it's nothing but jump scares. You know, it's yeah. like the art of the jump scare. Um, nothing wrong with it. Uh, and, and I mean, I don't even think you didn't have to make a Blair, which look, nobody would have given a shit if it was entertaining. If it, if it held, if it, if it, if it worked for an audience, 
then jump scares are great. Who cares? It, it just like, I, I feel like it didn't, it, it's not scary. Uh, that to me, I think is the harshest thing. I the harshest judgment I can level on any horror movie. If it's not scary, then why am I watching it? You know, am I watching it to, to see these kind of cle- over, over and underwritten characters in, you know, in this series of events play out, but never be like, not care about them because they don't feel like real people. Yeah, yeah, I was I was going to say that is, you know, the, the the first film, you really care about Heather, Mike and Josh and what yeah. they're going through. And, you know, I've said this before and, and, and Karcher said it, you know, you end up becoming like the fourth person in that film. For sure. You know, if, you know, and, and in this one, you're just kind of like. Again, it works in different franchises. When you watch a Friday the 13th or a Nightmare on Elm Street film, like you know what's going to happen to these characters because it's the precedent is there. Yeah. And you're watching for the villain. And in this one, it's it just there wasn't enough, I think, all around to make it that type of film. Like you don't have to care about these characters. You you want to see them get their comeuppance because you know you're rooting for the witch. No one's really rooting for the witch in this one, but I don't think anyone's rooting for the characters to make it anyway. Yeah, and that's just the thing that's you know everyone you know it, it is a very much character dive into the different aspects of the people or what they thought were the audience of the first Blair Witch, and it's like, okay, cool, you got the consumerist angle, you got the analytic angle, and whatnot. And it's like what are you going to do with that? You know, okay, we got, you know, Erica made her, you know, thing about like, is this really what we need with Wiccans right now? And, you know, yeah. all that, you know, and then Jeff, you know, his just shameless consumerism and all that. Like, it's an interesting concept, but you just don't go far enough with it. And I summed up um, with my conversation with Ed, also link below, I'm being very shameless here. Do it. Um, that it's like, this movie felt like the sequel you do 20 years later like this felt like the final nightmare or new nightmare um you know when you've had several sequels and it's really changed it was the beast master through the portal of time (laughs) of the blair witch franchise (laughs) exactly but i mean it's just like a very weird thing to be like we're gonna do the deconstruction a year and like two months after the original one came out it's just like a very odd way of doing that and i i mean i can respect the idea of doing a what is real when does the legend become real when do the fans become part of it it's like it's an interesting concept i just don't think it was wise to even start with that and then when you add in the fact you know with what we've talked about with the rush of this that they really didn't get too much you know passes over on the script that's like yeah you don't have interesting character so yeah now it's just jeff is kind of becoming the stoic guy i guess staring at the footage that he's trying to become the new heather i guess like i every time i rewatch this movie which admittedly isn't a lot um i try and like it, look this at is the first time i've angle. looked at it in seriously probably at least 15 years you um, watch it every Sunday, Matt, right? Yeah, yep. Yeah, yeah, every Sunday with my morning coffee and newspaper, I kick back and watch Book of Shadows. <laughs> I mean, I, I mean, the, th- the thing with me, I, I think with this film is, you know, I said earlier, Blair Witch didn't lend itself to becoming a franchise. And, and we got the computer games in, in 2000 and everything, which I enjoyed. But this film, to me, effectively shot the Blair Witch, quote unquote, franchise in the foot before it got out of the gate to become something 
mm-hmm. you know, we, you know, in 2000s, the internet was still young. You know, we, you know, gaming was, was getting there. You know, we didn't have social media. We didn't have online gaming. So we didn't have some of these avenues, especially streaming. So I feel that you know, this film, when it came out, effectively stopped anything from Blair Witch kind of permeating more into the long-term pop culture, which the first film has continued to resurge in the last, you know, five to 10 years with the the new rounds of found footage, the the social media aspect. So I think this film being, being done when it was and how mm-hmm. it was stopped any sort of consistent new stuff basically you know you know books or games or you know special series on you know hulu or you know whatever i i just think it just it was it was too soon yeah and also there there is this mythology and i've had this conversation with many people uh that there is a better cut you know sort of the the Snyder cut, if you will, of Blair Witch 2 to go back to Joe Berlinger's original vision. And, you know, my I've seen that cut. I, I saw the cut bef- before they did the reshoots. It doesn't work. I mean, uh, this script, which I showed you guys before we started filming, this is that script. Um, you can read it. Tell tell me if you think it would have been a an excellent movie. Not Maybe there's a better movie. I mean, there's a better movie in any footage of any movie ever made. But, uh, but I, I just like the problem is the acting is kind of jacked. The script is not there. Um, the, the actors are good. I think that they're doing what exactly what they were hired to do. I'm not, I'm not bagging on them. I just think it was all a rush job. And so it like what I would like to see when people talk about like the, the genius of what Joe's movie was. And I, I agree that that's an interesting idea for a movie. I say, make it as not a Blair Witch sequel, just make that movie as its own thing and let Joe and, and, and whatever writers he likes to work with really take their time and craft the script first. And I bet it would be great because I think Joe has an inherently amazing sense of story and I think he really knows what he's doing. I just think that it's really hard to work under these circumstances. By the way, I was at that location where they shot the stuff, the warehouse location. Super creepy. It's like, have you ever been there, Matt? Does it still exist? Yeah, I went there a couple of years ago before one of the Blair Witch experiences, and it's in a very gentrified area now. It's oh, really? Not, oh, it's to get to the door where um, he was just at, you have to. Like there's condos everywhere. This is a big condo place now. Oh, it was like a big your... empty field of nothing. When oh I was no, there. no. Crazy. There's there's condos everywhere. Like you have to go behind the building and climb on like a 45 degree sloped wall with those big landscaping rocks, and you can get to that bridge. But it's it's uh, bordering a big uh, chain link fence to another huge house right behind it. So it is, it's not in the middle of nowhere. It is. I mean, it's on kind of a. There's a main street with a huge walkway going next to the building. It's. Mm. You would not have expected this 15 years ago to to look like this. Yeah, there was nothing there when uh, when they shot it. So I told you that there was an original idea I had for the special I was going to do for uh, for Shadow of the Blair Witch, and it involved interviews with all the main cast and Joe Berlinger, uh, with some fake incidents like some made up crap that I'd come up with. And so we went there and we conducted interviews with most of the cast, Nancy Shriver, the DP, and Joe Berlinger. And uh, it was only after we'd done that that they canned it. But um, 
and they had me do the, what I did for uh, Shout Out the Blair Witch. But I got to go there with Neil Fredericks, the, the late, great Neil Fredericks, and I went to the Blair Witch 2 set, and both of us were just like, what the fucking fuck, as we were driving through this, like, a, a giant empty field outside that warehouse, or whatever it is, whatever that building is, and, and it was just like a small city of RVs, you know? I mean, it was, I think, like a $20 million movie. So they had... Every department had their RVs, all the offices and everything, like everything. They were at that location for, for most of the shoot, I think. And, uh, and both of us were just like, what in the hell? Cause of course, you know, having worked on the original one, you know, we knew that pretty much all the gear that existed could be put in the back of Dan Myrick's, uh, you know, Jeep, uh, Cherokee. <laughs> and, and so it was just super surreal to like go there and we got to meet most of the cast. Um, and they were all really nice. You know, like the cast were nice. Uh, Joe Berlinger played along with my stupid uh, script idea. He he uh, he was game for it. Um, you know, everyone was cool about it. I mean, people were having a good time making the movie, I think. You know, I mean, the shoot itself was a normal scheduled, you know, kind of kind of shoot. It's just what got them there was a rush. And then what got them out of post was another rush because they were shooting, I believe, in March. And the movie was released in theaters that October. I mean, that's just insanely fast and i actually have to say um you bring up shadow um i actually prefer watching shadow of the blair witch over this i thought that was a very interesting kind of turning into the manson murders type depiction so i highly encourage people to go check it out um sadly much like burkittsville 7 it wasn't on the dvd release of this so yeah i don't know what that was all about somewhere it's all actually, if you want to watch both of them, I put them both on my Vimeo page. If you do a Google search for Burkittsville 7 or Shadow of the Blair Witch, you will find at least my Vimeo page. I know that somebody else put Burkittsville 7 on YouTube. Um, and yeah, it bums me out they didn't put it on the DVD. I don't exactly know why they spent all the money on those things to not put them on the DVD, but they aired on uh, Showtime and Sci-Fi Channel. I don't know if it was tied up in weird rights. I have no idea any, anything to do with all that stuff. Yeah, it's super odd that it wasn't included in any home video release because, you know, Shadow was obviously created exclusively for this one. Um, but even still, Burkittsville 7 is retroactively tied in with the whole Kyle Brody and Asylum connections that they shoehorned in. Yeah. Though that brings up a very interesting point because Joe is on the record for being especially displeased with the whole, you know, title card in yeah. the beginning saying this is based on a true story and this is a reenactment. Because that was the antithesis of the whole vision for the movie he had, that it's wrong to lie to the audience. It's wrong yeah. to portray film as the truth when it's not. So that's very interesting that he was playing, I guess, a fictionalized version of himself in your original vision. Originally, they were using all their real names. Uh, this, this is nuts. Can I tell you, this, this is just a bonkers part of this movie. Is like in the original movie, all the actors used their real names, right? So naturally they had all these actors use their real names and when i was making shadow of the blair witch i was like wait so we're we're gonna say jeff donovan did this <laughs> like jeff donovan the actor the jeff donovan the guy on on screen who's playing somebody with his exact name runes again god it makes me mad anyway um uh anyway so they were like yeah that's what we're gonna do so we filmed it that way and and then like i don't know like a month before the movie came out all the actors mutinied on it and so they didn't want their real names to be their characters' names for the very reason why you wouldn't want your real name to be the character's name in a movie like this. I mean, you know, in a, you don't want to be saying you're a murderer. 
at least in the original Blair Witch, they were saying they were victims. <laughs> like in this, they're saying that they're killers. And, um, and so uh, they had to go bring them all back in and ADR them all. Like they changed it from Jeff Donovan to Jeff Patterson. Like they changed all of them. And then we had to bring our actors in uh, the few times that his name was said on screen or that anyone's name was said on screen and ADR our actors saying Patterson instead of Donovan and, you know, all, all the other characters' names. I, I think Jeff Donovan might have been the only one that we had to actually do because the whole thing was about Jeff Donovan having committed this crime. Yeah, well, and they say in that, like, you don't name... Um, you don't name Kim or um, Tristan, um, and yeah. it, you know, they're they're still hidden under anonymity at the time. So I guess yeah, you wouldn't really have to do it with Jeff. Yeah, it's just uh, it, it was it was just like it was one of those cases I think of like the executives misreading what worked about that from the first movie, and then being like yeah yeah we're gonna just we're just gonna do that thing that that worked in the first movie, it, regardless of whether it made any sense in this movie to do the same thing. So. Uh, you know, and and uh, I, I mean, you know, I don't think it was an expensive backfire, but it was a headache for somebody for a day. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because even on the original one, you didn't really necessarily need to do it, especially in the era of pre-social media. So it's not like yeah. anyone was looking up, you know, Heather and Josh and Mike or whatever. Like, I know they had the IMDb pages to say missing, presumed dead and all that. So it was an interesting angle to do obviously you know part of it was you know for when you're improving, you know you don't want to slip up and say oh heather when you know her name is really mary in the movie or whatever but yeah it was very yeah. interesting the idea of like we have to use their last names and i didn't even think about that in this case like yeah yeah they're murderers now <laughs> well and it was just murderers. it was just a weird thing like and i remember having that conversation with the executives because you know like when you're making a marketing special for uh for a studio everything has to be approved every 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 little thing has to be approved obviously and so you know i would get when i had a question like that i would you know fire off an email or whatever and be like just so i'm clear this is what we're doing yep that's what we're doing okay right on and uh you know because you know uh no no it's no inconvenience to me if jeff donovan wants to be wants to tell the world he's a murderer in this movie but I, i figured actor jeff donovan wouldn't be into it so again with again with the friggin' runes. Yeah, I want to watch Halloween six now for some reason. Oh, I got my 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 thorn Michael Myers tattoo. Oh, <laughs> nice. <laughs> I I often wonder, you know, if if the studio hadn't hired Joe or if Joe had been more experienced, if he would have been able if his input would have been received differently by the executives, if he would have looked at something and said no, this isn't going to work. And quick sidebar, I was kind of excited this location that Kim's walking into this grocery store. I happened to be flipping through the channels one night and I stopped on Runaway Bride. And I only stopped on it because it, it always comes up in the conversation when Blair was released. It was the number one movie and yeah, Blair was number two. It was two. why we were never number one. That and then Ru- Sixth Sense. Runaway Bride uses this location in the film. Oh, really? that's funny. Yeah, she she hops. They they have to walk because the car's broken down. They hop over this fence and they walk up, and it's actually in the distance. And I actually like stopped and I was like, "Holy shit, that's the grocery store from Book of Shadows." That's crazy. Super sidebar, but um, you know, I just wonder if you know if the studio had decided to hire a more experienced director, if their input would have been heard by the executives to say, "Look, this is not going to work. We need to change this," or if they hired joe because he didn't have that much feature film experience because they just wanted to get what they wanted 
based on the previous summer's returns? Well, I think part of it, I think they hired Joe because they wanted indie film credibility. And he had indie film credibility to spare having made, you know, the Paradise Lost films and Brothers Keeper, uh, you know, both of which are fucking masterpieces. I mean, they're, they're just amazing documentary work, um, you know, with Bruce Sanofsky, his co-director at the time. But Joe's always wanted to, you know, make make narrative films. And uh, here's the thing. I, uh, and I have a have a friendly disagreement about this uh, because he feels he knew Joe from the because he was one of the marketing people at the Florida Film Festival and he knew he'd met him Joe Joe Berlinger and Bruce Sanofsky used to come to the Florida Film Festival every year and, and could hang out with him and felt like uh there wasn't enough communication but um but but that there wasn't enough outreach I I, I will say this I think Joe is somebody who had major indie film cred and um and and he and he was someone who had made these films that had really impressed people. In fact, including there were bo- there was a book of shadows as part of the story of Paradise Lost. It was a thing, and uh, and 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 I think that uh, I I, it, I don't think it had anything to do with inexperience. You know, he was he was a forty year old fully developed human being making this movie, um, and and he had been around the the entertainment industry for you know over a decade, probably two decades at that point. So I feel like he knew what he was getting himself into. And I feel like the studios could, any studio at any time could hire like a really good TV director and tell them exactly what they wanted. And that director would give them what they wanted. I think they wanted Joe to come in and have an influence over it. And I do feel like the story is infused with the themes that he likes. Just in my opinion, somewhat inartfully, that's all. Yeah, I think yeah. the problem is you would ultimately have is this movie's problems is like playing whack-a-mole. So, okay, yeah, let's say for the sake of the argument, say you did get the more experienced director who would maybe push back. Well, then do you, they still not listen to the whole, well, we want this out for Halloween the following year. So then you're still left yeah. with the, we don't have enough time to prepare this. Okay, well, you have enough time to prepare this. Then you have the director, then you have X, Y, and Z, that there's always intrinsically linked back to artists and wanting to rush this out was going to create... Yeah, exactly. You response. you have a, a blue sky idea in February that, like, as soon as you say it, someone's, like, building the set 10 minutes later, and then a month later, you can't back out of that idea. You're kind of stuck because there was no real organic... Um, there wasn't a real storytelling process going on here. Um, it, it, it wasn't, in my opinion, organically... It wasn't something that was like crafted and written and rewritten and thought through. It was something that was like jammed through. Now you'll hear stories about like I've heard that uh, Nightmare on Elm Street three, which is one of the best in the series, that uh, Frank Darabont and Chuck Russell wrote that in a weekend. I'm sure they outlined it in a weekend or something like that. Um, maybe they jammed out a lot of the script. You'll hear stories about people writing stuff really fast. And the thing that I've always said about this is I get it when because uh, I want to direct movies when when uh, when I had the opportunity to direct a movie uh, I enthusiastically said yes even though it had to be shot like six weeks after the day that I was that I said yes it had to be drastically rewritten and there was a writer's guild strike that we all knew was about to happen and yet I did it anyway why because it's like I'll figure it out and I feel like that's kind of the thinking that somebody I'm not saying that that was Joe's thinking but I think that that's not an uncommon 
way to go. Like, okay, this is, this is an ideal, but what's ideal. You know, I, I want to make movies. Let's make like, I can make a big studio movie. It's going to play in 3000 theaters, you know, like whatever the hell I go make is going to get a wide release. That's a big, big deal. I, I, I mean, I've always thought as much as I don't like this film because of how I feel it did things to the, the Blair Witch franchise. And I use a franchise lightly because I don't think it is. This would have worked better without the Blair Witch connection. That's my I, point. That's my whole point. I, I would love I, to see I, this movie without it being a Blair Witch yeah, movie. I, I think if you would have taken out the Blair Witch references and just made this movie, I feel it would have been a, a, a 10 times better film. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree. And that's what my co-host Jake said when he watched this. He's like watching this and he like had to remind himself halfway through. He's like, oh yeah, this is a Blair Witch Project movie. Like at that scene when she's like mentioning Rust and Parts. Like, oh yeah, this is not just a horror movie deconstruction of like Legends. It's a deconstruction of a movie that came out a year prior. It's just a very weird way of doing that. And I think, yeah, that was its greatest drawback was the Blair Witch, you know, mythology Ooh. and, you know, ethos and everything around it it was a giant anchor on you know joe's neck and everyone else you know trying to make a good movie here ironically yeah yeah and and I thought, I, go ahead ben uh no you go ahead sorry no <laughs> i, I, I completely lost my train of thought i was gonna say it's kind of the opposite you know the blair witch game that came out a couple of years ago to me it felt like they had this great budget title and they backed into the blair witch thing because the blair witch thing's only kind of like at the beginning and the end of the game where you're really talking that Blair Witch mythology and it just seems it, to me, it sticks out. You know, it just seems like certain films, if they try to shoehorn something in, you can tell to me, it feels like this was done after the film was made. It, there was a reshoot or something that yeah. was kind of tacked on and it completely takes me out of the enjoyment that I want to have with that movie. You know, is a good example of that. Uh, this is a deep cut Hellraiser debtor. Um, I read Deader when it was just Deader and it was the most terrifying script I ever read. I mean, really, I couldn't put it down. I thought it was brilliant. And then it got sucked into the Hellraiser mythos and they kind of had to tack on, uh, you know, a Doug Bradley pinhead sequence and stuff like that. And I feel like I'm, I'm not saying run out and see Hell, Hellraiser Deader. It's a hidden masterpiece. But I think if you watch that movie, you'll go like, oh, I can see if that's if this wasn't a Hellraiser movie, this actually would have been pretty cool. That's the one he's in for like what, like ten minutes, if, if that. If that, yeah, he's not in it much because it's not a Hellraiser story. Yeah. They just yeah. bought, they just bought this amazing script, and I remember somebody gave me that script and said, "You're gonna like this," and I read it, and I'm like, "I cannot put this script down. It is one of the most terrifying scripts I've ever read." And then when I heard they turned it into a Hellraiser movie, I was like, "Okay," but at that point, Hellraiser movies were not going to theaters, so it was like released straight to video, which meant that the budget wasn't probably what it should have been, and. You know, they'd had to compromise the concept to the point where it, it just didn't feel like it didn't feel like what made the script good. And it didn't feel like a Hellraiser movie all at once. Uh, and I and I do feel like all, like whenever we've you know, when they have the Burkittsville seven kids running in front of the car in weird old timey costume and makeup, that's actually not really that good. Or they've got that other guy playing uh, Rustin Parr in the grocery store, stuff like that. Like it, it really does feel like, OK, now we have to do this. It feels so obligatory and and it just hits the brakes on this on the story of this actual movie that could be good mm -hmm. yeah and actually i want to talk briefly we talked over it um but we passed my 
literally my favorite part in this entire movie. It's when they're all checking themselves to the runes on it, and Tristan just flippantly lifts his shirt up and then kind of just looks like, ah, uh, even I have it, and throws it back down. Just the way he plays that is my favorite part of just, like, how it's just, like, so casual at this point that they're just, like, <laughs> unraveling. I love it. I don't know if that was intentional or not, but I just wanted to mention that. One thing, Ben, I, I actually thought about, the the cutting to the police interrogation, was that in the original script? Was that in Joe's original cut, or was that something that, done afterwards? That was a restructure. So the okay. police investigation stuff was, I believe, at the end. I have not sat down and reread the script in many years. Uh, but as I recall, that was all at the end. And then, uh, again, one of the executives at Artisan was like, oh, we can frame this. It does work as a framing story. Like, it does It does feel intentional. But that was not how it was written to play at the time. Yeah, I don't know how I feel about it because I read um, Joe was ticked off about that as well because it was summed up in the interview I read as, you now know they're in trouble that they have done something or they're yeah. being at least accused of something. So it kind of ruins it. But at the same time, it would have been like the end of it Psycho. ruins it. <laughs> um, it would have been the end, of, like at the end of Psycho, when they're just sitting in the room. It's like describing like Norman Bates, you know, like oh, this is what he has done, and it would have. I think that could have been like a little bit like okay, we're sitting here for like probably would have been ten or so minutes when you string all those scenes together. That would have been a little bit much, I think, at the end. So I do like the way this is actually cut in like i'll accept the fact that they're in jail for something whether they did it or not i don't know i think it still works and and this is actually probably my favorite part of the film is when cravens is in the background waving just just so out of to me it just kind of makes me sit there and chuckle because like we were talking earlier his character is actually my favorite in the film just because of his performance um but just just kind of seeing him like trying so hard to prove you know, prove that he is right about the character of Jeffrey and yeah. that he's going to get him. Uh, I, I just always enjoyed that part of the film. I also like canonically in my mind, I have now, because obviously he's supposed to be the sheriff that's been dealing with all this shit from like when yeah. the three went missing originally that he's just like, he's done now. He's like, I'm annoyed with you all. Also frustrates me is that if I think this is supposed to be coffin rock. And they're supposed to be like so deep in the woods, you know, according to the first film in the mythology, they have to hike almost a whole day to get to Coffin Rock. And here the news reporters are standing right there at Coffin Rock video, you know, broadcasting the news from somewhere that's supposed to be very hidden. Yeah, I never thought about that. You've just added one more tick on this movie again. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, to me, those are kind of things that I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't personally allow myself to get that upset about if, again, if the rest of it was working. Ben, shut up. The fans are talking. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, I I think what it is, is, I mean, speaking as a fan, you know, we we were so enthralled with everything in 1999. And like we're talking about the mythology was so well done. It was so heavy. It was an integral part of enjoying that first film. This one's just kind of cherry picking. It's like, well, we really want them to be a coffin rock. And we really want this broadcast to be here. And it just, it, it kind of doesn't make it feel as, and like you said, scary or, you know, yeah. you know, were they really out that far in the woods if they're standing right there next to a parking lot where the news But that's bro- the thing. Bro- and, and I guess that maybe when you, when you kind of talk about what you were mentioning earlier, Matt, about like, was Joe the wrong choice? It's like, does Joe make scary movies? 
did, did Joe's movies scare anybody? Like, I feel like Joe's movies enlighten. Joe's movies are intriguing. Joe's movies have you on the edge of your seat. But uh, none of them are scary. And they're about people killing each other. And they're not they're not framed in a scary way. I don't know that scary is the is his love language. And that's okay. He doesn't mm-hmm. have to make scary movies. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I think that, you know, uh, I would, I, I, again, I would, I, it, it, even the movie kind of wraps around kind of a central mystery. If that mystery was really mysterious and I was, and I was, you know, leaning forward in my seat, wanting to see this mystery unravel, um, I, I would have been cool with that. Like, you know, it doesn't have to be the most terrifying movie ever made. It just needs to be compelling. That's the word. It needs to compel me to keep watching. I mean, think about uh, the movies Suicide Squad and The Suicide Squad. One of them has been very fussed over by studios and changed away from its original intention. One is very pure to its voice. And I feel like in this example, really, like the first one was had no choice but to be pure to its voice because nobody cared what we were doing. And this one was fussed over. And, 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 I, and I feel like every stage of it was overthought and also underthought because, you know, it's like you're you're trying to make studio executives happy, but you're also you don't have time to sit around and craft great dialogue. You know what I mean? Yeah. And and I'm I'm not being disparaging of Joe because I know he is he is very talented. I just think it's to me, it's like you got you got this script, like you said, over over performs, underperforms. You got Joe and you got the studio. It's just like all these parts to me just don't fit right together. And mm-hmm. it's if you would have changed one of them, I, I feel that the film would have landed differently with the audiences. I, I don't have any problem with what Joe did. I, I always felt that the the story, it's just the story and the construction of it. It, it just it it stopped me from leaning forward in my seat like you were just talking mm-hmm. about it, it. It's like this movie is like 40 percent of the way there. It just it's like it doesn't fully commit to being one thing or the other. And I feel they try to tell different different stories in different ways in one hour and 45 minute hour and 50 minute movie. Yeah. And I don't know. Again, I go back and forth. And obviously, as I've said, I came from this franchise to put it, I guess, if we're actually to call it a franchise um, much differently than you two man who worked on the original movie and man who wrote the book i was seven when this came out i watched oh these movies. god don't tell me that oh, god. <laughs> i'm sorry ben um i'm just i'm elderly it's fine no it's fine um yeah i'm really 14 don't worry it's fine oh <laughs> that's that's cool no no yeah. i mean you know freaking yeah, thing no, came but out. i came at these from a much different um mindset i had known about the blair witch project i rem- the first time i'd heard about it was when e did the hundred scariest moments like thing and i'd seen embarrassingly the nostalgia critics review of this so like i came into like this a lot later and i'm yeah. still like very much like i love the mythology and whatnot of it and it's like yeah i agree with what you're saying you gotta pick one or the other are you gonna do a deconstruction but you have to be very accurate to what you're deconstructing. You can't have the half-ass, as you point out, like, well, okay, is Coffin Rock in the middle of nowhere, or is it in a parking lot? Or are you just doing a movie about a deconstructing of a myth that has nothing to do with the Blair Witch, and then you make that movie? You have to pick one or the other, and that's the frustrating thing with me as even a new fan, reasonably speaking, with this movie. 
and hence why I'm forcing you two to watch this with me to talk about it now. <laughs> it's it's very cathartic because you know. Well, your your check cleared, so we're we're all good. Yeah. Shame. Yeah, you got a check. I mean, like he just showed me uh, compromising photos that he was going to oh. release. Oh. oh, that's how I got on his first show. Mm. I made him pay me for this one. <laughs> yeah. Well, Ben, you know, again, since you live down the street from me. Seriously, we we could have we could have like I could have walked over to your place to record this at your house. I'm actually in New York right now, so that would have been weird if you were. So I, I that would have been super weird. I could I could have gone and done that, and you wouldn't have been home. That would have been extra weird. <laughs> is that my movie poster in the background? Are you <laughs> what the hell? Where's Ben? <laughs> and and I mean even and, and and I, you know, when I started jumping back into the Blair Witch thing seven eight years ago, and you know a lot of people were coming out of the water. Like, I love Book of Shadows, and I was like why and and it took me a little while to kind of understand how this movie hit folks very differently than than Blair Witch hit me and when I was writing Eight Days in the Woods I I didn't want to come across as as a he-man woman hater of this film I wanted to you know talk critical of it because I felt it was important to the overall history of the film and in terms of the pop culture Mm -hmm. and in Hollywood and it, and I have I've had to watch it differently. Um, you know, my dislike of it is like, and we've talked about it. You know, just doing this, it's, it's not the actors, it's not Joe. It's it's more of the the things that Joe and the actors had no control over. And it, it was very interesting to hear the takes, you know, from you and Ben, you know, Ben, you and you know Mike and Greg and Ed and Dan and all that because it really made me have to look at this movie very differently than one that I, you know, I watched this film a lot in 2001 when it was on DVD. I kept, I kept going back to it. There was something about it. And then it was like, I let it just kind of sit on the shelf maybe for a good decade before I picked it back up. And, and when I watched it, I was like, I didn't have a feeling one way or, or another towards this film. And I always like to have some sort of, reaction to a movie i try to find something enjoyable about every movie i watch and i was kind of disappointed this didn't resonate with me more as as someone older who had been so close to Blair rich for so long well and obviously i come to this movie with serious baggage so you know like and and that being said i was rooting for it i wanted it to be a success Mm -hmm. like i wanted the movie to be a giant blockbuster because if it was a giant blockbuster then i was part of marketing a giant blockbuster i was part of the team that had created a you know a franchise uh you know like to me i i had uh many uh many a self-interest in this movie being successful and i remember going to see it in the theater we were working on uh in search of in orlando so i had moved out to la and then went back to orlando to work with greg hale on in search of when this movie came out, I went and saw it in the theater and like, you know, a really nice theater in winter park, Florida. That is the one that everyone's going to go to see the movie on opening night. And the audience was like 20% full. And I was like, Oh, we're fucked. Like this just isn't, it's not going to work. And, and to be honest, um, I have different feelings about the Adam Wingard uh, movie that came out in 2015, but I went and saw that with Dan Myrick at the arc light in Hollywood. And it was the same thing opening night. It was like 20% of an audience. And I'm like, yeah, I don't think this is really going to like in Hollywood on an opening night, like on a Friday night, this should be sold out mm-hmm. or at least or at least pretty packed. And like there's, you know, almost nobody, not almost nobody there, but just not that many people were that excited for it. And it, it's made me wonder 
over and over again, kind of around uh, to what you were saying earlier, Matt. Like, I wonder if this really is a movie franchise. Like, it's a brand name. People know the mm-hmm. name. But that alone isn't enough to make a franchise that people want to go pay money to see in a theater, unfortunately. And uh, and, and I think it it is kind of always grasping at straws to find the concept that could work as as a, a viable sequel whatever to to Blair Witch I I think a you know a limited series told different ways over different periods by different folks and different formats would be more engaging for this type of film because you can do an episode or two on Rust and Parr and you can do one yeah. where it's just old news footage and then you can do the you know the wood cutouts and do you know Ellie Kedward's backstory um you can do the Burkittsville seven you can do you know there there's so many things that you guys created in terms of a timeline that you can go to and say look we'll we're going to do a six ish six um episode run you know the Blair Witch Files and and just kind of go over it like that and I think that in smaller bites rather than trying to fit a, a vast amount of timeline into a movie is is just a better format for me and that's it's just me speaking I just think it would land better. Yeah, and I agree. Yeah. And that's what I think, you know, and again, going back to Matt Samai's first video, I love the Oni comics. Uh, I think even with the flawed few issues I like we discuss about, and, you know, Matt may have different favorites from that series, but I think that's something you could have done too. Like do, you know, differing things of, yeah, a couple comic books a year focusing on the Rustin part, then a couple comic books, you know, focusing on any which, you know, not which um any different you know story you could have done with you know the Blair Witch universe but in smaller scale would have been infinitely better than how do we keep doing a feature length movie because well, this is definitely a different feature length movies were, is at that time especially is where the money was so you know uh i i agree with you on a storytelling and uh artistic intent level but the people who 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 owned the the property, which was Artisan at the time and is now Lionsgate, what they want is they want something that's going to give them a giant financial return, exactly. and um and so you know and also today I feel like you know today you could do a podcast today you know the, uh, the video game the ability to make video games like the video game that came out a couple of years ago is just you know so much more visually exciting than the video games that came out in two thousand just because the technology to make them is better now. And, uh, and so, you know, not making feature films might be the way to go. I know that Lionsgate has talked about possibly doing a TV series. I'm skeptical that it will happen, but maybe it'll happen. I don't know. Um, but, but I, I, you know, I, I, my, my feeling is like I would, and, and, you know, doing a comic necessarily gets you out of this. But like, get out of the get out of the found footage business. Like, don't don't let the medium be the message every time. You know, mm-hmm. um, that's that's my two cents. You know, and maybe I'm you know just you know a, a curmudgeonly person who who uh, was part of the original team. But I feel like uh, a friend of mine who who's a sitcom showrunner. Uh, said to me once, like I was telling him about an idea I had for a comedy show. And he's like, get out, like the way to make it work is get out from under your premise. I think he used like Mork and Mindy as an example. Like Mork and Mindy is about an alien living with a human, but it doesn't really deal with any of the actual issues that an alien living with a human would ever deal with. Like it's basically just like 
any number of other shows like Perfect Strangers or whatever, where it's just like one goofy person and one and one straight man. And uh, and and so I feel like getting stuck in the found footage business with this might start to uh, it, it, it 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 typecasts it too much when I think that the story isn't about the found footage, unlike Paranormal Activity, which I think is about the found footage-ness of it. Mm-hmm. And that's what that's why it works to make sequels in found footage. But you know, maybe if in two thousand or two thousand one they'd come out with a found footage sequel, maybe that would have made the difference i don't know i mean i don't know because i i agree with you that with that you know you get out from underneath the premise but it's like i don't know i mean this obviously was financially successful not the mega hit the first one was and it definitely got out of the found footage angle but then you know 20 years later 10 years whatever it was later they do the adam wingard one and it's like okay you know that also was successful but not nearly you know enough so i think it just shows that it's like Maybe I mean, I don't, I don't think by any metric either one of those movies were especially successful. I mean, well, I, I mean, think, they made their money back at least. So, in that, well, the Adam Wingard one was made for a, a lower, and I'm not talking any smack about the Adam Wingard one, and I won't talk any smack about the Adam Wingard one, but financially, I don't think it did all that well. Like, it kind of tanked. And this one, again, if this one had been a third the hit that they had expected it to be, uh, uh, they would have had an IPO. They had to cancel it. And and seriously, Artisan three years later sold all their assets. Like this this movie killed Artisan. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know. I think it just goes into that it's a little hard to do something feature length with the Blair Witch once you get outside that original lightning in the bottle. Because when you did the weird deconstruction, it wasn't as big. And when you did a traditional, let's just do another found footage, it wasn't as big. Now, I don't know. Maybe if you did the found footage, it's Heather's brother, you know, in the, in now 1999, he's going in and it came out the year later. That would have yeah. worked. I, who, I mean, it's a, it's hard to say. Game, I mean, it, it really is hard to say. And, uh, you know, I mean, the, to me, I, again, at its heart is the question is like, is Blair Witch something that works as a movie franchise? And as Matt said, it wasn't something that we ever thought of as a franchise when we were, when we were making it, um, you know, and probably if we had thought, Hey, th- there's franchise potential, maybe we would have come up with the, we would have changed the mythology to accommodate that better. Um, but I think you're both right. You can make comic books, you can make video games. I, I think you could make a podcast. I think you could, there's a number of, uh, media that you could take this into that would, that would, you know, I mean, um, uh, the the podcast that I was involved with a few years ago, uh, Video Palace, which Mike Manello co-created, uh, he and Nick Brachia, the guy who he co-created it with, uh, got a book deal and had a book of short stories uh, about part of Video Palace built into it. But I think that's about the genius of Mike and, and how he thinks on this multi-platform level. And I think that that... Uh, if it doesn't, if that thinking doesn't start, it certainly went into high high gear on Blair Witch when he had the opportunity to sort of do it on the first movie only. So things like putting it on the internet and Curse of the Blair Witch, those were his ideas. Um, I, actually, I don't know if Curse was his idea. I know that putting it on the internet was his idea. Um, but you know, we all saw how you could take that idea and then kind of ripple it into into different into different forms and media. And I also think that there's 
an idea that's maybe a little antiquated, maybe a little bit on the way out where it's about that feature film is the highest level of anything that you could ever do in your life. So if you're making a play, eventually you're going to, you know, if you're making Hamilton, eventually there's going to be a feature film of Hamilton. Like maybe things are okay to not be feature films, not, not to be feature length films. I had worked, uh, I don't want to say what it was, but I'd worked on a franchise that was trying to be launched uh, of, of a very well-known book series and they wanted to make it into features. And there was one conversation about turning it into a, uh, an HBO series and they could have done it. And uh, the people I was working with were kind of high enough placed at the studios that I think that they just had it in their heads that feature was the way to go with it. And they eventually did get a feature made, although not with any of those people. And it was underwhelming, which is why I will not say what it was. Um, yeah, but it could have been, it, it could have been a lot better and it could have been a lot better if they had let it, breathe the way the book series breathed you know what i mean mm-hmm. yeah i mean i i just took a look you know bl- you know book of shadows was a 15 million dollar budget and it made just under 48 million and adam and simon's movie was a five million dollar budget with 47 million so i mean yeah the, the, not not you know nothing to sneeze at but it obviously wasn't you know i'm assuming they would love that hundred million dollar mark to to kind of say look we made another hundred million dollar movie on you know, 15 million. I mean, well, the it, problem is that they probably spent 30 million on marketing, yeah, you know, like that could be. And, and, and so, so, I mean, that, that happens all the time where you'll hear that, you know, a movie cost 250 million and made 400 million, but they still considered it a loss because they'd spent another 200 million on marketing. Yeah. And, uh, I don't know what the marketing budget was on something like, uh, like the Blair, the 2015 Blair Witch movie. But, uh, you know, it, it was it was probably at least the budget, again, if not way more. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. And I guess it just goes as we're now wrapping up the movie that what the greatest sin with this is, with, and I think with you know, the 2015, 2016, I'm forgetting when it came out too, um, one is that, like, it didn't have the care put into it as much and i think there's a lot of good ideas specifically in this movie that are almost like half-baked because they didn't have enough time and you know time to like hash them out so it's like you know the one thing i find very interesting is that jeff has personnel files on all of them and it's like well what is that you know but then we really do nothing with it you know jeff in the mental institution well we really don't do anything with that you know erica was a Wiccan who came up from, you know, uh, uptight, you know, you know, background, you know, what are we going to do with that? Nothing gets done with that. And it's just a lot of great ideas that the rush to get out, as you said, you know, well, why were we going to do that? Oh, money. I want to make a lot of money in 2000, not 2001. I mean, that's my opinion. I'm yeah. not, you know, I, I wasn't in those rooms, but yes. Well, yeah. But your opinion, I should say, I think. Is, I, I think, I think that there, I think that there were a lot of very cynically driven decisions made from the upper levels that trickled down that, you know, every, everybody's running to fill the hole. Cause here's the thing. Joe Berlinger could have looked at this opportunity and said, yeah, it's not for me. And then he could have walked away that would have meant that he wouldn't have had a movie playing on whatever 3000 screens or however many screens they released it on. Uh, it also would mean that, you know, I, I, it's, it's a tough call to make when someone's like, you know, they, they've got that golden ticket. They're kind of holding, holding in front of you and saying like, you can have this. You're most, most filmmakers are going to, are going to jump in and take the risk because it's, 
hard enough to get any feature made to have someone come to you and say, Hey, here's a, here's a feature ready for you to make. Let's do it. That's great. You know, uh, that, that's something that most, most filmmakers would want to do, but Joe could have said no, but somebody would have done it. Somebody would have made this movie. Maybe not mm-hmm. this movie, but somebody would have made a Blair Witch 2 and they were going to release a Blair Witch 2. And I don't know. I don't know for the life of me how it wasn't going to suck the way that they were doing it. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I mean, again, I just go back to just so many different things in this movie. Like, you know, one of my other gripes, and this is the Peggy scene in the grocery store, or the runaway bride grocery store, as I will call it mm. now, is that it's like, I get it. They're on edge, but like she, Kim j- jumps way too aggressively to like, you know, choking and all that, where it's like, we still need to see these people as victims in this. And it's just a thing where it's like not enough time was put into how do we make this work as a Blair Witch Project movie or a movie in general? Yeah, I think that all, again, all would be forgiven if it just worked as a movie. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree with you. I mean, Ben, you said earlier, I wanted this film to succeed. I, I was so excited. I was I wanted more Blair Witch stuff. I mean, I had tons of Blair Witch posters in my dorm room freshman year. I was riding mm. that high and I was like, there's another Blair Witch movie coming out. Yes, please. And, and, and I was, I was so excited for it and, and I just, I wanted more. And I think that's just kind of why, you know, when I look at this film, I, to me, this, the legacy of this film was it, it stopped anything else from happening for 15 years until Adam and Simon made their movie. And, and I really have, would have loved something if they hadn't done anything for five, six, seven years, that would have been okay with me because I felt that it would have died down people probably were talking about it now it's time to go back just too soon it was too soon for me yeah. and 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 i just i wanted so much more out of this than 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 we got but it did introduce me to jeffrey donovan who you know i got reintroduced to years later with burn notice and like you said kim director when she showed up in inside man i was like holy shit that's kim from yeah. you know book of shadows um you know, and Erica really... Learson's been in a bunch of stuff. Some of these actors haven't done a whole lot of work uh, since this, but Erica Learson's been around. Like you know, she was in there's... the Texas Chainsaw remake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She was really good in that. She, I think she's an amazing actor. I think. I, I mean, I think the cast is all pretty solid. I just think it was. It was just a less than ideal uh, way to make the movie they were trying to make, and I feel like they again they were just they they were they were trying to re re-bottle some magic that they didn't know how it got bottled in the first place and honestly is one of the people who made the first one I don't know that any of us could have completely created a new genie in the bottle either you know like it's it's hard to do it's you're lucky in your life to do it once you know you do see some filmmakers who you know like Spiel, your Spielbergs and your Guillermo del Toros or your James Camerons who managed to do it more than once and you realize okay these people have like a they're a, they have a skill for this they have a knack for this but it's really hard and you have to have a certain degree of control and you know after the first Blair Witch I don't know that anyone was going to get that much control because everyone was so new um you know and 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 I mean it's a different world now like again I feel like if the first one came out today um you could probably they they could have maybe released it through a company like it might have gotten released by a company like Shutter who understands genre and really cares about genre um i think artisan it's not that artisan didn't it's it's just that i think there was a cynicism to the way this was put together and and it's frustrating because you know there's a lot of really good work going on here uh more good work than bad i just think it doesn't add up to a good movie 
Yeah, and more like the parts are better than the whole. Like there's exactly yeah, a lot of great parts, but when you put them all together, you're just kind of like, eh, it it's okay. Um, Look, like Nancy Schreiber is a world class cinematographer. Uh, Joe Berlinger, as we've said, you know, just like one of our best living documentarians. Much, you know, D- Jeff Donovan went on to be kind of a big deal TV star, and no one's going to say he's not a he's not a solid actor. Uh, you know, the uh, much of this cast is the same way. I I feel like I feel like there's a lot to recommend it. It just doesn't it it doesn't add up. If it added up to a great film that wasn't a great Blair Witch sequel, I might have I would feel differently than I do about it. But I don't feel like it adds up to a great film. And I know that Joe Berlinger doesn't feel like it adds up to a great film. R- random story. My wife uh, had a film. You can't really see the poster behind me uh, right there, but it's for a short film she made called Right that played Sundance in 2008. And uh, Joe Berlinger had a film there called Crude, and she happened to get seated next to him on a bus to like uh, Robert Redford's Rah Rah Filmmakers Luncheon. And uh, a mutual friend of ours named Fraser Bradshaw outed Alicia Tincho as my wife, and he told her the whole story from his point of view. And it's it's all the same stuff we've been talking about. He was mm-hmm. he was just kind of kind of bait and switched into into making a movie that I don't think he wanted to make. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, and and I feel like he kind of mortgaged his credibility as a, as a narrative filmmaker who who was going to make a narrative film. I think he he mortgaged that uh, to Artisan so that he could make this movie, so he could make a movie. And uh, you know, it's a bummer, you know, because I do think he's I think he's super talented. Yeah, I think if you gave this like and team like everyone who was involved in this if you gave them like another year at least to breathe and figure out how to do a better script and you know have a little bit more time on it i think we would have gotten a good movie and a good agreed which sequel just the script if they had just had time to develop the script the writing is is the single hardest thing to get right you know and good writing is really hard to come by and you you sort of never know, you know, but you you know you you take a leap of faith. Again, the movie I made for Warner Brothers, you know, had it was going to be shot, uh, you know, uh, the the first shooting day was uh, December the second, uh, two thousand seven, and whether I was directing it or someone else was directing it, that movie was getting made that day, and I I jumped at the chance, and I don't regret it. Um, but also, I didn't get released on three thousand screens, and I also wasn't the sequel to a movie that was an unexpected blockbuster. You know, if I was making, uh, you know, The Sixth Sense Part Two in in two thousand one, <laughs> and uh, The Seventh Sense, if I was doing that, and uh, and and you know, we'd had two months to develop the script, and it had to be in theaters. You know, what fourteen, fifteen months after the original one came out. I don't know. I, I I I probably would still do it. I think most most filmmakers would still say, "Well, you know, if 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 it's bad and you're still where you were in the first place, and if it's great or good or well received, then you know you get a career bump." And it really did. This movie did send uh, Joe Berlinger sort of back to making almost exclusively documentaries for a long time. I think the next narrative film that he made was uh, was that um, Ted Bundy film for Netflix, which only came out like a year or a year two ago. ago. Yeah. When I read that, I'm like, oh, holy shit, you're right. Yeah, he hasn't done anything. But he's made a number of great documentaries yeah. in the meantime. And, you know, I I honestly, I mean, like, I liked that movie. Okay. But I'll take his documentary, Crude, which was the one playing at Sundance in 2008. I'll take I'll take those over, uh, o- over you know, a docudrama about Ted Bundy. Agreed. Um, 
Yeah, no, it's just, again, I go back and forth on how do you do a good Blair Witch sequel? How do you do continue the sound? How do you make this a successful franchise? And I think it can be done, but damn, I wouldn't want to be the one to try and do it either, though. I don't think I could have yeah. done it better than this, given the tools. So, you know, who am I to, like, try and crap on this? Like, they did the best with what they were given. And I don't know if it's, if it's time has come and gone, but I feel like, and, and maybe it's, be, I, I'm obviously biased, but I think the answer to me would be, give it, go back to Ed and Dan, <laughs> go back to the guys who, the two guys who created it in the first place and have them kind of brainstorm it, even if they don't make the movie, but maybe they do. I don't know if they, if they want to co-direct or if they could co-direct because they're both in the director's guild now and the director's guild is really uh, particular about letting people co-direct, but whether they co-direct or one directs and one produces or somebody else directs and they're just, you know, the creative force behind it, who cares? I feel like they have the, they know the feeling of, of this. And uh, I would love to see what they would do. And I know that when the 2015 one came out, like they, there was, they'd had an opportunity to pitch an idea together. I don't really know very much about it, so I can't speak to it, but I know that they had, you know, kind of reunited to kind of come up with some, some pitch ideas and had pitched some stuff. Um, and for whatever reason, you know, Lionsgate went with, uh, Adam Wingard and I said it then and I'll say it now you, you couldn't go in a laboratory and create a better director to direct that kind of movie than Adam Wingard you know mm-hmm. he's, he's just amazing so and it's uh, not unheard of in 2021 for for folks to be pulled back into the franchises that they created at you know more than a you know consultant type level I mean I'm sure if Wes Craven was still around maybe he would do Scream 5 you know stuff like that yeah, like John Carpenter is very involved in the new Halloween movies yeah yeah, so I mean, it's it, we're we're at that point the 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 social media environment. I I, I think the way we consume media now is it, where they're taking looks again at these franchises and these movies where they were like, maybe we should have done this, you know, twenty years ago, and now they're like, you know, with Halloween, they're like, well, we're just gonna ignore all of these movies and we're gonna bring the original folks back in and we're gonna do it this way. I think there's good and bad things to that. I think it it just really depends, I think, on who is in control of the property. And yeah. do they get it? And what's their what's their motivation behind it? And I mean, sometimes, you know, no matter how altruistically it doesn't work, you know, I mean, like Terminator Dark Fate, um, you know, underperformed and was basically a direct sequel to T2 and pretended that all the other Terminator movies never existed. Like, all right. You know, I mean, it's, uh, it, it, no matter how you slice this business, it's always pretty high stakes. So, Mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's easy to go wrong with stuff. And, uh, you know, if Blair Witch 2, if Blair Witch 2 had been a runaway hit, we'd today be dissecting how deconstructing the first movie was the most genius move of all time. Mm -hmm. You know, who's to say? And I think, you know, to quote one of my favorite movie special features of all time, um, you know, Robert Zemeckis sums up that kind of attitude of how it turns out will determine how you then look at it is um, he was asked about Back to the Future 2 kind of doing a someone brought up. It's like, well, you know, this is kind of like and it's a wonderful life type movie. You know, was that an homage? And he sums up as when your movie's successful and you do something like we did, it's an homage. When it's a failure, it's a ripoff. And that's very Mm. much like that's how it is so yeah had this movie you know broken box office records but made more than the original one yeah we would definitely would be like okay how did this work why did this work versus 
it didn't work, but we like certain elements of it. And it's just a very fascinating, like, and I mean, sometimes it's like, and sometimes there's just nothing you could have done to make it work. Like, um, I'm not saying the suicide squad didn't work, but it's underperforming at the box office. And I think that it's a perfect storm of, you know, the COVID virus Delta variant and people just not wanting to go to a movie theater and it's streaming on HBO max. And, and, you know, the streaming on HBO max thing is maybe a self-inflicted wound, um, you know, and I saw, I've actually watched the movie twice. I think it's really good, but, mm-hmm. but, and I would have gone to see it in the theater, but I'm not, I'm, I'm being very careful about going to see the movies in the theater with the Delta variant, like a lot of people. And that's just, that might mean that that movie goes down as not a big financial hit. And I, and I think too, we, we have to stop looking at movies, financial performances an indicator of whether or not that movie was good or not. Cause there's tons oh, of movies that I'm sure we all love that have underperformed at the box office that we absolutely love for various reasons, whether or not from a technical or cultural standpoint, people think it's a masterpiece. I love a lot of films that I know aren't good. And Mm -hmm. I don't like a lot of movies that hundreds of my friends think is the best thing since sliced bread. And, and I think using financial success as a metric as to whether or not a film is good or bad is something that really needs to change. And I think, you know, one thing I've noticed is, you know, as I've gotten older, I watch films a little bit differently than what I did when I was 20. Mm-hmm. But I still try to find something to enjoy about every film that I watch. Even like I said, Book of Shadows, there's a bunch of this film that I really, really like. But at the end of the day, I I watch it and it's more of, all right, yeah, it was released on this day. I'll give it a watch. I just kind of like kind of slog through it. But then there's other films where it's technically horrible it's a bad movie but i love it and i'm gonna watch it and i'm gonna enjoy it and i i just wish i i wish this film had landed differently so that we could talk about it differently and and i don't i don't think talking about a film like book of shadows being a financial disappointment is trying to think of how to say this we, we've talked about it. it. It didn't all work as, as a whole. And it obviously showed in the box office. But there's, to me, when I look at it, there's so much potential there that I could, I would love to have seen what Joe could have done if he'd have been like, look, we got to change this. We got to change that. One or two Agreed. things. And I felt it, it, it would have been 10, 20 million more successful because maybe the trailer included stuff that Joe did that he pushed back on the studio with that they put in and it, it, it resonated with people and it got them in the, in the theater. Yep. Yeah. And I think, you know, the, like you said, you know, monetary is one way of looking at, it, but another way is also like, you know, how the audience, you know, feels towards something. And I try mm-hmm. and look at this as, you know, how does the general population feel, but how does the fan base feel about things? And I think what sums up is tying back to Blair, Witch is I love Mike's uh, Mike Williams story about when he went to see the first one in his hometown and someone stands up in the theater and yells, that movie sucks. And he's like, ah, don't beat the crap out of me. And I love that story. And I'm like, well, how could you hate this movie? But then I go see the 20, uh, the 2015 Blair, Witch, and it's hilarious to me because that moment literally happened in my theater. Someone, it was clearly a Blair, Witch fan because he had a t-shirt on. He was like in his late thirties, early forties or whatever. So like probably went to see the original one and he stood up and screamed, that movie sucked. Like it was literally parallel moments. And it's hmm. like, yeah, I can see some people like, I agree with that. I didn't particularly care for the 2015 one as much. I liked it better than this, 
but like i can then also on the other side say why did someone not like the original blair witch and it's trying to see how does this work and with a movie this divisive that's how it's difficult to like clamp down and make a truly this is going to appease a ton of people across the board one thing I noticed is, you know, when this gets when Book of Shadows gets brought up on the, the Blair Witch Facebook page, it, there's a lot of responses. So obviously this film hit with a lot of folks. And, and I kind of look at the I, I try to figure out who, the age of the responders to kind of see is, is there a, is there a pattern that, you know, the the folks that saw it in the theater that were. 15, 16, 17, 18, that younger age, did it hit different than someone who had seen it in their twenties or thirties? And, and there is some of that. I think it's, I think it's what age they saw it at and when. Oh, for sure. Uh, just like any film, but I mean, just like with this one, like there's a lot of folks that they saw Book of Shadows in the theater, but didn't see Blair Witch. And I think oh, yeah. that, that kind of- Well, there are people too. There are people who I really respect, like uh, Brian Collins, Sam Zimmer, Sam Zimmerman and uh, Joe Bagos, you know, filmmaker Joe Bagos. And all those, all three of those people tell you that they like the second one better than the first one. All, and they all actively like the second one. And, yeah. uh, you know, and they have all three of them have told me that. <laughs> um, and uh, it's like, you know, hey, I, you know, I don't want to I don't ever want to tell anyone what to like and what not to like. I can tell you why I don't like it. But also in the same breath, I'll tell you, I'm obviously going to be super biased mm-hmm. because they made it in a direction that I that I disagreed with as someone who was a big part of the first one. And I don't think any of those three guys has told me they didn't like the first one, but they might not. I don't know. And if they don't, that's okay. Mm-hmm. You know, like you're allowed to not like things. I don't yeah. care. <laughs> I don't care who likes things and who doesn't like things. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I should say I, I don't have a judgment on someone for liking something or not liking something. Um, you know, it's, it's not a fact that it's a bad movie. I can only say it doesn't work for me and didn't seem to work for audiences, mm-hmm. but that's, Meh. And and I agree with you, Matt, about, you know, financial success. I think that, you know, like there's tons of amazing indie films that no one's ever heard of or that got like a very limited release or, you know, for whatever reason, didn't make a big splash. But when you look at them later, you go like, oh, wow, holy crap. What a great movie. Uh, one of the movies I never shut up about is John Dies at the End, Don Coscarelli's John Dies at the End. I love that movie. Love it. I've seen it probably 15 times. I saw it twice in the theater. I can't believe that movie isn't a, a cultural touchstone, but it isn't. So whatever. I'm the guy who likes that movie and not everyone else does. That's fine. <laughs> you know? No, I'm the same way on a lot of movies and, and I need to see John dies at the end. I, I've heard a lot of people talk about it and I, I like Don Coscarelli. So why haven't I seen it? It's just never been that day it's where brilliant. John dies at the end is, is on my TV screen. When we were casting video palace and chase Williamson came across uh, my desk as a possible lead actor, I was like, obviously. And then I was like talking to the executives at shutter and they needed, they, I mean, it's, it's fair. They needed to be convinced. They needed to hear auditions. They really liked him, but I was like kind of starstruck working with chase every day. Uh, even though, you know, it's like, you know, he's, he's a pretty unassuming down to earth guy. Uh, but, but I, I just love that movie. I think that movie's amazing. And, uh, you know, and, you know, I, I think everyone should see it, but my, my point being like, you know, it, it's, uh, some people are going to like chocolate. Some people are going to like vanilla. It's not, it's not a crime to, uh, to like a movie or to dislike a movie. Um, and a lot of people don't like the first movie. I, the, the thing that I will say is I feel like the first movie 
like it or hate it was made with a lot of heart and it was made, uh, you know, like we all put everything that we had into it and it was made in a very sincere way. And I feel like the second movie was made with a lot of money and, and it was made as a cash grab that does every movie made as a cash grab. Isn't bad. There are plenty of cash grabby movies that are awesome. Uh, so it, that doesn't mean that it, that doesn't make it bad. It just, I think informs part of why I don't like it is that it feels is that it was cynical in its, in its conception, but also like there wasn't a thorough, there wasn't a thorough development process put behind that. Okay. So you want to have an IPO and you want to make a lot of money, but also you have an opportunity to make a great movie. Why not try? But they just didn't give a shit. They wanted to, artisan wanted a movie in theaters that October. That, that, that really is what it came down to. And so it was a marathon for the people making it. And I, I just don't, they could there's probably some weird confluence of uh of events that could have led to a an excellent movie for that but i i just feel like it's uh you know it's it's kind of a one in a million uh when you can make it's one in a million to make a good movie period but like to make a good movie under under that kind of pressure is just really not easy for anybody yeah i mean i i mean seeing blair in the theaters in 99 i was like everything about that movie hit and i was like revering you guys without knowing you know ben i don't think i knew really who what you had done with the film until steve introduced us that one night and i was like ben it's like i know that name and it's like but they were like yeah you worked on blair Witch. i'm like yeah what are you doing and they're like he made the stick man i was like holy shit i've got that tattooed on my arm for almost <laughs> 20 years at that point and it was you know and and then getting to know you guys over the years and, and everything and i was like it's made me go back and love the film more because I see the passion you guys brought to that film and, and how you wanted to do something good, regardless of what the end product was going to be. You guys weren't like, we were, yeah. we wanted to make, you know, a million dollars. You're like, we just wanted to make a scary movie that was good. And we just yeah. happened to do it this way. And, and we were all friends and we got together and said, let's make a movie. And, and, and we that, lucked out Yeah, <laughs> and everyone worked really hard. And then we also lucked out. Yeah. And, and that's why I tell folks, I was like, you know, people are like, oh, they got so lucky with the marketing. I was like, nah, I said there wasn't so much marketing as it was pre-positioning themselves to to do things differently. And they, yeah, there's always luck involved with everything. We got as, luck that the internet became a new thing right around that and, time. That was, yeah. that was the luck. Yeah. And, and that's why I tell folks, I was like, if it would have hit a year before, a year after, probably wouldn't have done what it did as, as well as it did. But they just they put themselves in the right position. They recognized certain things. They they had their hearts in it and it came through in the final film and everything else these guys did. And when I find that out, uh, when I find that about movies, like whether it's through a commentary or a feature ad or something that really makes me watch that movie different. And I and I tend to seek that movie back out if I hadn't, you know, if I don't own it, I'm like, wait, I want to go back and watch this again based on something I read. And a lot of times it, it really, you know, puts that up on my list of films to recommend or, or continuing to rewatch because I can see what the filmmaker was going for by how they talk about it. Mm-hmm. And you guys have always talked about how much fun it was, how scared you were, how nervous you were, how lucky you were. It just it it was a perfect storm for you guys. And I'll always be thankful for the work that you guys did for that film because it's brought me so many great friends and so many great experiences that it's it's always going to be one of those moments in my life that I'm like, thank you, God, for what you guys did. <laughs> like, thank God yeah. you guys decided to go make that movie. Ah, oh, thanks. I appreciate it. 
I mean, I, I have your book right over here. Like I, I, uh, you know, it's, <laughs> it, it's, uh, it's amazing when you do a bunch of goofy stuff with your, uh, college buddies and, uh, and then it ends up being, you know, worthy of, of research <laughs> decades later. <laughs> yeah, it needed uh, it. It needed it because that's what I said to Ed. I was like, what's Lionsgate doing? And they're like, nothing. It's like, how about I write a book? Oh shit. I've never written a book before. Um, <laughs> so what do I do? And that's, and you know, the, you know, I wanted to treat what I was doing with the same care and reverence as you guys did making the movie. Cause I didn't want it to feel like a tabloid or feel, make it feel like, Oh yeah, we just, we did this thing and I didn't want it to read like vacuum cleaner instructions. I want, I want people to, to see what you guys did. And, and some of the feedback I've heard from some film friends that are filmmakers is they're kind of using it as a Bible. They're taking what you guys did and trying to apply that to their own film to get it made. Hmm. Well, good on them. I mean, it's in ways it's a lot easier to make a film these days and in ways it's a lot harder, but yeah, exactly. It's a lot harder to get anyone to give a crap. A crap. It's yeah, a lot easier to, to, to make a, a film that looks like it belongs in theaters. Yeah. Well, and again, I just want to say this has been a lot of fun doing this with you guys. And then, yeah, yeah, yeah. like I, and I said this to you and when we did our first video, Ben, um, yeah, I've had a lot of reverence, you know, even coming in much later to the franchise. Again, I was seven when this came out, trying to make you feel older one more time. It's okay. You'll get there. Yeah. <laughs> and and when you do, I'll be in my 70s. It'll be great. <laughs> yeah, I felt I felt a lot older after we finished the movie. I'm like, oh, my fingernails are growing. I need to cut them now. You had a short, <laughs> haircut. You had a short haircut when we started the comic. I did. I did. Uh, but yeah, no, I mean, when I first saw Burkittsville 7 on YouTube and I like saw you had commented on it, I'm like, oh my God, like I kind of want to email this guy through like your YouTube I, I never, I never do that either. And I don't know why I just had, a, it was like, I found that Burkittsville 7 was on YouTube and I, and people were, I, I mean, like people are allowed to talk smack about it. I don't care if you don't like it. That's fine. Whatever. But like so many people, so it had been watched so many times and so many people were saying positive things about it that I was like. You know, I was just, I was personally overwhelmed. You know, here's the thing. I may have told you this in our last interview. I'm not sure. And I don't know that I've ever told you this, Matt, but it's like after Blair Witch 2 came out. So like I was nobody from Nowheresville, moved to LA. Blair Witch came out the year that I was out here. And suddenly my phone was ringing and I had an agent and I had, you know, like I had a burgeoning career and I was able to make those two specials and blah, blah, blah. Blair Witch 2 came out, everything cut off. And for years, I just thought everyone hated Blair Witch. And it wasn't really until talking to you matt and and probably also like the one two punch of around 2015 when suddenly there was this when the move when the new one was coming out and there was a resurgence of interest in blair witch that i was like oh people actually like this movie like like it actually did stick around i i i had had an interview for a job doing uh reenactments on one of those crime scene shows and when i told the executive producers that i'd worked on blair Witch, i kind of got a sneer that was like a, a month or two before the announcement of the new Blair Witch movie. And, uh, and th- I was used to that though. And so it, it's actually kind of, so like when I saw that people actually had responded positively to the Burkittsville seven, something that I had put everything into. And I really, you know, like, you know, to me, every time I get to make a movie or anytime I get to make a project, I'm like, this could be the last one. I, everyone could learn that I'm a total fraud after this and I might never work again. You know, like every single time. But Burkittsville 7 was the first thing I'd ever professionally directed 
period, much less in LA, much less with a, with kind of a, a big budget for me at the time, it wasn't a huge budget, but it, for me, it felt like a lot of money. Um, like I put every fucking thing I had into that. So the fact that it still resonated with people, uh, uh, it just, I don't know. It was just an honest response. You know, 20 minutes later, I might not have commented cause it's, it's poison if you're a filmmaker and you comment on a, on a public thread, you know, you're going to get dragged. You're going to get, you know, and, and you never argue with anyone. You never tell, you know, like you, you never get into a, into a, a, a spat with people on the internet because you will lose. It doesn't matter how right you are or who you are. It doesn't matter if you're Steven Spielberg, you're just going to get bullshit. So I almost never do that kind of thing. But on that one thread, I did comment because uh, I was blown. I was honestly blown away that anyone gave a shit is, is the truth. No, I was just going to say, I, I felt the same way. You know, I got the stick man tattoo to my arm 48 hours after moving into my college dorm freshman year. The film was still in theaters. <laughs> oh, wow. And for years, I would be wearing a sleeveless T-shirt or a tank top in the summer. And people would be like, is that the Blair Witch? And I, I felt the same way. I felt like I was the only Blair Witch fan in the world because no one was talking about it. It never came up in conversations. I didn't yeah. see any articles about it. And it wasn't until, you know, 2013 when I decided to finally go visit all of the locations and I started digging around online and, and I would talk about it and people would start commenting on, on my post or message. And I was like, do people actually like this movie? Cause no one talks about it. And then now it comes up constantly on the found, you know, and found footage groups or just, yeah. in, you and know, I think film. it's, it's old, it's old enough that it's kind of uh, graduated to that level, you know? Yeah, I think it, I think it took time. I think, you know, I think it was so hot so quick in such a short period of time. It was like it just seemed like it just took forever to like kind of simmer back to the top. Yeah. Yeah. And and I'm glad it's there because it's it's every day I get Google alerts from when I was working on the book, you know, Blair Witch. I'm like, oh, there's six, seven new articles every day referencing Blair Witch, whether it's a list of something or a Reddit thread or something. Yeah. So it's it it's you know, 22 years later and, you know, thank God it, we're still talking about it because I think it needs to be talked about because I still think it's going to be relevant in another 20 years as, you know, technology changes and, you know, people are making movies on their phone again. And I'm sure they're going to be making films on their Apple watches at some point whenever that gets, you know, shit like that. You know, we're going to, you know, it's just going to evolve, but it's all going to come back to what you guys did because anything that isn't done as a, as a narrative it's going to people are going to think Blair Witch as soon as it's done, you know, slightly different, that Blair Witch connection is going to be there. And I think it's going to constantly reignite the love of the film. Yeah, I agree. So, well, and I think that's a good optimistic way to wrap up mm. talking about Book of Shadows slash it's almost 1 a.m. for <laughs> me and Matt. Oh, it's like 10 o'clock for me, man. I'm going to go party. <laughs> so well again thank you all for coming on um this has been a lot of fun and here's to um book of shadows and blair witch and a lot of fun stuff we all talked about tonight thanks for having me i really appreciate it yeah thanks for having me well i hope everyone out there had as much fun listening to this as we did recording it um if you want more blair witch fun there is a playlist below to check out has the commentary we did with Ed for the original Blair Witch Project last year, um, my conversation with Ben, as well as the video that Matt and I did earlier this year reviewing the um, Oni Blair Witch comics. So let us know if you'd like us to talk more about the Blair Witch Project in the future, and um, have a good night. Mm -hmm.